This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 2nd, 1985. Delta Airlines Flight 191, a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar with 163 people on board, is flying through a thunderstorm and preparing to land at DFW Airport in Dallas. The crew is doing their best to avoid the bad weather and they're following a Learjet that has landed on that same runway just ahead of them. Suddenly, just a mile from the airport, the winds begin shifting, buffeting the airplane and pushing it in all directions. The crew is caught in a microburst and fights to maintain control of their aircraft, but they're too low to the ground and they crash, killing 136 people. How did one plane manage to successfully fly through a storm, but another not make it? What is a microburst and how dangerous are they? Find out in this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. We're back. Hello, Chris. Hello. I want to learn about microbursts. <laughs> I can say good afternoon to you. Normally, we record these in the morning, but we're doing a rare afternoon recording today. Yeah. Post-lunch. Post-lunch, even. We're going to learn about microbursts today. A little little known fact. Uh-huh. I'm going to tell you a little, little bit about Gus, about me personally here, Chris. Okay. When I was a, a younger, when I was a kid, I loved meteorology. Like, uh-huh. I was super fascinated with it. I want to say when I was like 13 years old, I went to a meteorology camp. Wow. And, uh, One, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, like I studied all about weather and how it all works. That's so much insight into young Gus. <laughs> yeah, so this is like a combination of my passions. Like the meteorology <laughs> has kind of like faded a bit, right? I'm, I'm still interested uh-huh. in it, not as much as uh, as planes, as aviation. But uh, there was a time when I was super into meteorology. And oddly enough, this is one of those incidents that I think shaped my interest in uh, plane crashes and incidents like this. Because when I learned about them back then at the time, I was really scared of microbursts and wind shears in relation to aviation. Because it was like, how do these things that are like invisible and you can't detect them and they can crash a plane? Before anyone freaks out and gets nervous, this was a long time ago. Now this is like 36 years ago now. There's the technology to detect them and we're much better equipped to handle those things these days than uh, the aviation industry was back then. Back then it was like, this is a problem and we don't know how to detect it or stop this. Ah. <laughs> Nowadays, not an issue. They We have advanced radar, we have Doppler radar, onboard systems on planes are a lot more advanced. So I'm spoiling the end because this is going to sound really scary at first. So before anyone gets nervous, it's okay. Everything's fine. Nowadays. Okay. So we'll get into the specifics of what a microburst is uh, a little later in the episode. I want to first like kind of set the stage about what's going on okay. before we dive into that. Did I did I tell people to follow us on social media at @blackboxdownpod? But now you have. Okay. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, look for us. We post uh, videos and photos and stuff that we can't necessarily show you in an audio podcast. You can uh, you can get more information there. Okay. Delta Airlines flight 191. First, right off the bat, like I said, it was a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. We've covered some incidents with these planes in the past. Mm-hmm. That Eastern Airlines plane that crashed because they had a burned out light bulb was an L-1011 TriStar. That was a long time. It was like episode nine, I think. How big are these planes? These are big planes. There's 136, so it's not that full of a plane? Yeah, it would not be that full. The L-1011 TriStar was a dual aisle plane. It's like, you know how most planes you go, you get on and there's just like one mm-hmm. aisle, everyone goes down? The L-1011 had the two aisles, like the bigger planes, okay. you know? When you normally get like on a transoceanic plane, it's like, oh, wow, this plane has two aisles. Yeah, that's even scarier than that it blew a big plane. At most, an L-1011 TriStar, I mean, like full, as many seats as possible and people in every seat could hold up to 400 people. Wow, okay. So this one was fairly empty flight. Yeah. No, not even. 162. I don't know specifically how many seats Delta had on their planes. You know, every airline yeah. modifies it a little differently. So yeah, let's say it was... At half full, maybe a little under half full. 
So this was a regularly scheduled passenger flight from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to Los Angeles, but it had a stopover in uh, Dallas, Texas on August 2nd, 1985. The flight was crewed by Captain Edward Connors, who was 57 years old, had about 29,300 flight hours, tons of experience. First Officer Rudolph Price Jr., who was 42 years old, had about 6,500 hours. And Flight Engineer Nicholas Nasik, who was 43, also had about 6,500 hours. The plane was fairly new at the time, was only six years old, had about 20,555 hours and 16,538 cycles. Okay. And there were eight flight attendants and 152 passengers on board. The flight took off from Fort Lauderdale at about 2.10 p.m. Central Time. And uh, the flight crew had some dispatch documents that showed the weather forecast for DFW. And it said there was a possibility of widely scattered rain showers and thunderstorms becoming isolated after 8 p.m. Central Time. The documents also contained a company alert valid until 9 p.m. that stated an area of isolated thunderstorms is expected over Oklahoma and northern and northeastern Texas. And you and I, Chris, you know, we live in Austin. We're a little yeah. south of there. But I know you know what the thunderstorms are like here, especially up a little further north here in the Dallas area, northeast Texas. They can get really violent storms. Oh, yeah. And even tornadoes, right, in Oklahoma and north Texas. Oh, yeah. Was, I mean, we had a tornado warning yesterday. A couple of days ago here in Austin. Yeah. yeah. And we get hail that's like the size of... I mean, easily golf ball, right? Yeah, we had some just last month, right? I mean, yeah. we had some crazy golf ball hail. I think in the suburbs just north of us, they had like softball size. Yeah, that's why I don't care about the car I drive. <laughs> that's an excellent point. So, I mean, storms, I mean, just to set the stage, storms can get really violent very quickly here. Mm -hmm. So the flight was uneventful until passing New Orleans due to a line of weather along the Gulf Coast that was intensifying. In response, the crew opted to fly a more northern route that would require them to hold over Texarkana for about 10 to 15 minutes for arrival sequencing into Dallas-Fort Worth. At 5.35 p.m., the crew picked up the current weather information for Dallas-Fort Worth, and it said scattered clouds at 6,000 feet, scattered clouds at 21,000 feet, 10-mile visibility, wind calm. So it doesn't sound that bad. Yeah. Just, you know, some clouds, but 10-mile visibility is really good. Yeah. About 10 minutes after this, air traffic control cleared flight 191 to descend to 10,000 feet and gave them a heading of 250 degrees. The captain said he was looking at a pretty good-sized weather cell at a heading of 255 and said he would rather not go through it and he would prefer to go around it. So you see, he's being prudent. Uh -huh. like he's being safe. You know, He's told to go 250 degrees, but he says, there's a big storm at 255. I want to go around it. And I, I think, in fact, the air traffic control gives him a little bit of grief and says, other planes have gone through it just fine. And he says, well, I want to be safe. I don't want to risk it. Yeah, it sounds like he's being very responsible. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, he's got tons of experience. You know, he doesn't want to risk it. But, you know, air traffic control went ahead and gave him a new heading and advised they would call them for when they're supposed to turn into the Blue Ridge Vortex. So basically gave them a new heading and said to call them when they're ready to make their turn. A few minutes pass and air traffic control instructs them to fly direct Blue Ridge and the crew, you know, complies. And of course, that's just like a, a waypoint, essentially. Okay. At 551, the engineer made a comment stating it looks like it's raining over Fort Worth. And for people who don't know, Fort Worth is west of Dallas. It's kind of like connected to Dallas, pretty much. It's like that big suburban sprawl. Yeah, they've all grown in together. Yeah. Speaking of suburban sprawl, when I was reading up on this episode, I read that the DFW airport is the size of Manhattan. Oh my God. It's, you know, as far as square miles go, it's one of the biggest airports in the world, uh, or the largest airports in the world. So it's uh, it's massive. Yeah, man. I mean, Texas does have space, so makes sense. Yeah, I guess, why not? So the crew contacted the approach controller for DFW, and a few minutes later, they received a message warning all aircraft that there is a little rain shower just north of the airport 
and to expect an ILS approach for runway 17 left. A little rain shower. Yeah, so conditions are deteriorating. Mm -hmm. It was just some clouds before with good visibility. Then the captain saw a thunderstorm he didn't want to fly through, and now they're being told there's a little rain shower by the airport. So it's getting a little worse. Okay. At 6 p.m., the approach controller instructed flight 191 to reduce speed to 170 knots and to turn to a heading of 270 degrees and sequence flight 191 behind a Learjet for runway 17 left. So they're giving them instructions to line up and they're telling them, you're going to land, but there's going to be a Learjet who's going to land on the same runway ahead of you. Okay. And a Learjet is like a private jet, like a smaller jet. It's, it's not like okay. a big commercial uh, aviation plane. When the flight was six miles out from the airport, air traffic control instructed them to turn to a 180-degree heading and to join the localizer at or about 2,300 feet. They then requested them to slow down to 160 knots and advised the crew they were getting some variable winds due to the rain on the north end of DFW. So again, like it's, it's just building, getting a little worse now. The winds mm -hmm. are variable. So the crew slowed down and they contacted the tower. The tower cleared them to land and told them the winds were at 90 degrees at 5 knots, gusting to 15 knots. And just perspective-wise, what are the knot speeds of a wind in, say, a hurricane? First of all, uh -huh. I'll say for reference, the 5 knots gusting to 15 knots is the equivalent of like 6 miles an hour gusting to 17 miles an hour. Oh, okay. And I think hurricanes are like 40 or 50, up to 100 or something? A Category 1 hurricane starts at 74 miles an hour. Oh, Okay. So that in knots would be about 64 knots. So compared to like even a light hurricane, not that bad. It's just a, a blustery day. It's just a windy day. Yeah. If you're walking down the street and a 17 mile an hour gust hit you in the face, you'd notice it. You'd be annoyed. So the crew started their before landing checklist and they lowered the gear. They set their flaps to 33 degrees. And at 6.04 p.m., the first officer said, lightning coming out of that one right ahead of us. Mm -hmm. A minute later, the captain called out 1,000 feet and warned the first officer to watch his airspeed. The rain began to intensify, and the captain warned again, you're going to lose it all of a sudden. Then said, what? push it up, push it way up. Then the sounds of engines at a high RPM was heard on the cockpit voice recorder. A few seconds later, the ground proximity warning system sounded, and the captain commanded a go-around. Two more ground proximity warning system alerts sounded, and a sound similar to that produced by a landing airplane and the sound of a takeoff warning horn were heard on the cockpit voice recorder. The local controller in the tower told Flight 191 to go around, and the cockpit voice recording ended at 6.05 and 58 oh, seconds. That's just describing that is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it all happened so fast, right? Like, the, the yeah. situation's deteriorating. They're coming into land. They're like, uh-oh, watch it, watch it, you know. And then you hear the engines roar. Then the alarms are going off, and that's it. Yeah, and they're like, oh, we'll go around. And then too late, yeah. Yep, too late. They're too low. So there's a highway that runs near the airport. And there's witnesses uh -huh. near State Highway 114 north of the airport saw Flight 191 emerge from the rain about uh, one and a quarter miles from the end of runway 17 left. Mm -hmm. And then the plane struck a vehicle in the westbound lane of the highway. Oh. Witnesses then saw fire on the left side of the plane near the wing route and said that the plane struck the ground in a left wing low attitude. Wait, there was fire where it hit the car? There was fire near the wing route. So like where the wing attaches to the fuselage. So like before it even hit the ground, it was on fire? No, it's when it struck the vehicle. So essentially oh, okay. it comes down, uh, hits the car, and then at that point, witnesses say they saw fire near the wing route, near where the wing hits the fuselage okay. or attaches the fuselage. And, and like I said, the plane hits the ground in a left wing low attitude. So it could be when the left wing hit the ground and starts separating, maybe the fuel ignited at that point. Okay. If I had to speculate what they saw, I would guess that that's what they saw at that moment. The fuselage rotated counterclockwise after the left wing and cockpit struck a water tank on the airport. So yeah, I mean, that wing snaps off and then the whole plane just like 
rolls over to that side oh. counterclockwise. And then hits a water tower? Yeah, a water tank. So that like elevated, oh. but, you know, on the ground. Okay. A large explosion occurred and the tail section emerged from the fireball skidding backwards. 134 people on board were killed, including the flight crew, along with the driver of the car, uh, who also passed away in the accident. There were 14 serious injuries, 10 minor injuries, along with one minor injury from an employee of the airline who assisted in rescuing survivors. And miraculously, two passengers had no injuries. The airplane was destroyed by the impact and post-crash fire. How many people of that were on the plane survived? There were a total of 163 people on board, and there was one person on the ground. There were 136 fatalities. So there were a total of 27 survivors. Wow. Okay, so very low. Yeah, 25 people with injuries and two people who were uninjured. Could you imagine being the two people who are totally fine? Yeah, I, I mean, that must be strange, right? Like, almost like a sense of guilt, I would think. Like, it's no no doing of your own. Yeah, it's like you walk away from that and you're like, why am I totally fine? But almost everyone else is dead or injured. I've seen an interview with a passenger who survived this incident. He said originally he was supposed to be in seat 15A. But he had to move because he was a smoker and the smoking section on the plane was at the back of the plane. So he got reseated way at the back of the plane to be in the smoking section. And the person who ended up in 15A died. Oh. So this guy only survived because he was a smoker and needed to move to the back of the plane to be able to smoke. Man, that's got to give him like weird guilt, right? Because he's like, oh my, smoking saved his life. It did. I hate to say it, but it did. I mean, he is only alive because he moved to the back of the plane in this instance. I don't know how I would feel coming out of that. Yeah. yeah. Also, what a different time. You could smoke on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> so the NTSB carried out the investigation and they discovered that Flight 191 flew through what's known as a microburst. A microburst is defined as a sudden, powerful, localized air current, especially a downdraft, and they're extremely dangerous to aircraft. So a big gust, and you said downdrafts is pushing into the ground? Yes. So essentially what they're going to encounter when they hit a microburst, it's a column of air that's very powerful coming straight down. So what happens is when the plane enters a microburst, first they get a lot of headwind that they're flying against, which causes more airflow over the wings, which generates more lift. So it's going to kind of pop them up and uh-huh. uh, give them a little spring. Then they get hit with that downdraft, which is just that column of air coming straight down, which pushes them into the ground. Oh. Then they, you know, they try to compensate for that. But what happens is as they pass through the microburst, then they get hit with a tailwind. And that tailwind essentially robs lift from the wings. There's less yeah. airflow over the wing at that moment. And I bet since they initially get lifted, they try and pull down. And then that only pushes them down further when they're, yeah. So it's like, compounded. And if you remember what the captain said, remember this was a very experienced captain. He uh-huh. may have known this was going to happen. His words were, you're going to lose it all of a sudden. Push it <gasps> up. Push it way up. Like he knew oh. that they were going to lose thrust. He was like, so he would say, push it up in reference to the, the throttle. Like <laughs> really oh. give it some more power. So he knew. You hear the engines on the cockpit voice recorder like spinning up into a high RPM at that moment. He was even predicting the weather in the moment and maneuvering he most likely knew that they were entering a microburst and what exactly what they had to do but at this point they were about to land the plane was so low that there was nothing they could do about it you know if they start losing lift you know normally at altitude a plane might nose down to try to increase the airflow over the wings but they're already you know at less than a thousand feet at this point they can't Mm -hmm. nose down there's nothing you can do the only thing you can do is try to increase throttle but you know takes a few seconds for that spin-up to occur. It's not an instantaneous thing. Yeah. So 
Photographs of weather radar for the area were examined, and the photographs were taken at about four to five minute intervals between 5.28 and 6.13 p.m. They noticed a radar echo developed two miles northeast of runway 17 left, and this echo is referred to as cell D. D like David. This developed at 5.48, and when it first developed, it was only a VIP level 1, which means it was weak, and there was light to moderate turbulence with possible lightning. At 5.56, cell D intensified to a level 3, which means it is strong with severe turbulence possible with lightning. By 6.04, cell D intensified to a level 4, which means it is very strong with severe turbulence likely with lightning. So all this happened within the course of 16 minutes. It went from something that was weak to something that was very strong with severe turbulence. Is the highest five? Uh, I believe the highest is six. So four is still really bad. Yeah. Uh, And this is just a testament to how quickly this situation deteriorated. Yeah. There is a center weather service unit for the Fort Worth Air Route Traffic Control Center. And they're supposed to be staffed by four professional meteorologists operating two shifts a day. The primary function and responsibility of the CWSU is to provide meteorological advice and consultation to center operations personnel and other designated FAA air traffic facilities. The information provided by the CWSU is to be developed through analysis and interpretation of available weather data in the form of briefings and other weather forecasts and nowcasts. So it sounds like there should have been someone there, you know, keeping an eye on this, right? And Mm -hmm. making sure everything was fine. The problem is the meteorologist who was working in this area was on dinner break at the time. Oh, no. He had taken a dinner break at 5.25 p.m., and food is not allowed in the radar room, so he had to go to the cafeteria, which was located downstairs, and he couldn't watch the radar, but he could be paged if he was needed. But this all developed so fast. This all developed so fast at right after he walked out to go get oh. dinner. So the meteorologist testified that there were no scheduled times for meal breaks, and breaks depended upon the existing weather situation. He checked the radar at 525 and saw there were no weather echoes within 10 miles of the DFW airport. And although he was not required to, he notified the assistant traffic manager of his intentions, and he was not paged throughout any of this, and he returned to the radar at about 6.10 p.m. He only took a 45-minute dinner break. He was not allowed to bring food into that room. He he didn't need to let anyone know, but he let them know, I'm not going to be here. Page me if you need me. He wasn't paged. So, I mean... Not his fault. You can't really blame him, right? Yeah. So, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration provided the NTSB with an analysis of the weather conditions affecting the landing approach of Flight 191. The analysis states that the data shows that the aircraft penetrated the main downdraft of the microburst at 550 to 850 feet above the ground. That's really close. Yeah, pretty low altitude. The aircraft survived the downdraft only to crash in the outburst, or low-level outflow of strong winds, which contain not only a strong tailwind, but a series of three strong wind vortices, which were part of vortex rings, which were called the main downdraft. The microburst was in the process of just reaching the surface when Delta 191 entered it. So Delta 191 entered just as it was happening. And like I said, you know, they got the headwind, they got the downdraft, and then as they came out, it was that really strong tailwind and then vortices, which caused it to go down. So this is like a column of air that's moving down and it was like going to hit the ground and disperse but it was like they don't last very long at all that's the other thing so microbursts are also really small at most and i'm, I'm going to stress at most they might be 2.5 miles wide and they might only last for a couple of minutes it was literally the perfect storm yes it was like we keep emphasizing here it just happened super quickly out of nowhere and it happened right as the plane got there and was probably going to dissipate very quickly thereafter oh man so you see why when I was younger, I was really uh-huh. scared of these. Yeah, because it's like, how do you prepare for that? Right. The technology just wasn't there to detect it at the time. 
Clearly, you have great taste in podcasts. You're obviously a fan of high-quality, fascinating shows hosted by interesting people. You know, otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. So go check out the Jordan Harbinger Show as well. There's something for everyone between weekly interviews, heavy-hitting guests, and tons of interesting topics, like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being hunted by the feds and the mafia. There's also tons of other great episodes. There's a great one with Stephen Hassan that talks about QAnon and uh, helping people figure out how to escape that web that exists of uh, of QAnon theories. Uh, there's also another great episode with uh, Steve Madden, who you may recognize as um, a fashion or shoe mogul. Super interesting stuff all around. Jordan Harbinger show covers a lot, but Jordan's always able to pull nuggets of advice from his guests. Every episode has something useful you can apply to your own life from actionable routine changes to slight mindset tweaks. I really enjoy the show. I think you will as well. There's so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We have to talk about that online shopping habit of yours. No, I'm not telling you to stop. I'm just telling you to be smarter about it. If you've been shopping online without Honey, the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one you can find to your cart, you've been missing out on savings. Imagine you're shopping online at one of your favorite stores. You go to checkout, the Honey button drops down. All you got to do is click Apply Coupons, you wait a few seconds as Honey searches for codes it can find for that site. If it finds one, you'll be saving sweet, sweet money. Honey has found over 17 million members, over $2 billion in savings. I was shopping for some shorts online, and uh, it was super simple. I just went through the checkout. It popped up, saved me a couple bucks. I didn't even have to do anything. I just I clicked a button, okay? I clicked a button. I'll take a couple bucks for clicking a button. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free, installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast I'd never recommend something that I don't believe in. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. You know how everyone on the internet's always telling you to drink more water? Well, sometimes plain old water just doesn't cut it when it comes to getting hydrated. But Liquid IV, on the other hand, provides two to three times more hydration than boring old water. Super great, super convenient to use. I keep it in the pantry right next to where uh, my glasses are. So in the morning when I get a glass of water, it's super simple. Like grab the glass. Oh yeah, Liquid IV right there. Put them together. Bam. Liquid IV gets you super hydrated, contains five essential vitamins, plus it's healthier than sugary sports drinks that kind of tastes like sweat anyway. Drinking Liquid IV is basically drinking future water. They use cellular transport technology, which is a fancy way of saying it's the perfect balance to help you hydrate more quickly and effectively. Getting yourself some Liquid IV can make you feel good in more ways than one, uh, considering they've donated over 10 million servings globally. So grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com. Use code BLACKBOX down at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you get better hydration a day using promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at liquidiv.com. So at the time the report was written, Delta's policy concerning wind shear is to avoid significant wind shear. And at the time, these were the published guidelines to the existence of significant wind shear. Uncontrolled changes from normal in excess of plus or minus 15 knots indicated airspeed, plus or minus 500 feet per minute vertical speed, plus or minus 5 degrees pitch attitude, plus or minus 1 dot glide slide displacement, plus or minus 10 degree heading variation. Below 1,000 feet above ground level, be prepared to execute a missed approach if you encounter either severe turbulence or indications of unstabilized flight path control. Delta and most major air carriers taught their flight crews to trade airspeed for altitude if they inadvertently encountered low altitude and wind shear. Flight crews were taught to increase the airplane's pitch attitude and to add maximum thrust if necessary to control the airplane's flight path, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. If necessary to avoid ground contact, the pitch attitude could be increased until the stick shaker activated and then decreased slightly to an attitude which would silence the stick shaker. So, I mean, they were like, pull back until you're in danger of stalling (laughs) and then give a little down. So, like, really, you know, be aggressive in fighting this. Yeah. 
The airplane's pitch should be kept at an attitude just below that, which would reactivate the stick shaker until the end of the wind shear area was traversed. The first officer was apparently able to apply the above techniques to keep the airplane on the ILS glide slope as it passed through and beyond the initial portion of the microburst. When the airplane descended into the vortex, the combination of an airspeed loss of 20 knots and a strong updraft most likely caused a momentary activation of the stick shaker. The NTSB believes that the first officer acted reflexively when the stick shaker activated to exert a 20 to 25 pound forward push on the control column. So like the oh. winds hit them just right to activate the stick shaker and then you push down a little bit because that was his training. And you know, when the stick shaker activates, you're potentially in danger of a stall. So he pushed down to, yeah. To try to stop the stick shaker. The control column force and the longitudinal stability of the airplane resulted in the airplane nosing over to a negative 8.5 degree pitch attitude a rapid departure from the ILS glide slope, and a descent rate which approached 5,000 feet per minute for an instant. A NASA analysis showed that the ground impact might have been avoided had the pushover force not been applied. So, I mean, there's the oh. speculation is maybe if he hadn't nosed down, it might not have hit the ground. But, I mean, I want to emphasize that even NASA says it might have been avoided. You can't say for certain. Yeah, and that was what he was trained to do, so. Right. However, the NTSB recognizes that the airplane was in an extremely turbulent environment, and because of the rapid reversals of the vertical winds, the airplane was subjected to rapid changes in angle of attack, longitudinal pitch forces, and fluctuation of indicated airspeeds. So, I mean, under these circumstances, the ability of the first officer to apply an optimum or recommended pitch control technique would have been subjected to a severe test. Like, everything was changing. The wind was coming from different directions. You know, stick shakers are activating. It would be very difficult to try mm -hmm. to navigate all of that precisely. So the flight crew applied maximum thrust shortly before the airplane departed from the glide slope and the captain called for a go-around within three seconds of glide slope departure. When the go-around was engaged, the airplane pitched upward in response to the first officer's application of a substantial nose-up control correction. During this period, the vertical wind changed from 40 feet per second downdraft to a 10 feet per second updraft. So, I mean, even the wind's messing <laughs> with them. Like at this exact moment, the wind's entirely reverse direction. Yeah, so there's the, this, there's the microburst and then also just the natural wind. If you think about it, like, uh -huh. the microburst is more than just a column of air coming straight down. Because if you think about it, like, think about if you were to take a fan, like a, mm -hmm. like a room fan, and you point it at the ground, uh, a few feet above the ground. Yeah, there's going to be a bunch of air hitting the ground directly, but then once the air hits the ground, it's going to spread out and then maybe even circulate back up. Okay. Yeah, those are those little spirals or, or like the... Exactly. Those are the vortices. Vortices, yeah. But then there's also just the wind blowing across, like not just down, but like hitting them, right? They might have been crossing from the point where, like imagine they left, if they when they leave that downdraft, they're leaving the section under the fan itself. And then they're getting to the point where the wind is, where that air is coming back up. Okay. So it's like they're, you know, they're passing through this. They get under the fan, are pushed down, then get beyond the fan. And now they're getting kind of pushed up a little bit from that air that's bouncing off the ground. And then that's whenever he pushed down on the... So he's, yeah, they, they try to do a go around, you know, they increase their thrust. They pitch up while they're getting, you know, knocked down. And then the wind changes and starts pushing them up a little bit, which is what causes the stick shaker to activate a bit, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though their okay. nose is up, which is what causes them to nose down. Yeah. And remember, th their speed is also low because they're coming into land. Their speed at this point is about 150 knots, uh, and the airplane was starting to accelerate. And it stalls around what? like a, a, little, a little below there. I couldn't, I mean, I can't say precisely because I don't know what the weight of the plane was with all the people mm -hmm. and the luggage, but they're getting close to their minimum speed because they're, they're, they're just about a touchdown. Oh, man. 
Shallow tire marks were found in the ground about one mile before the runway that indicates a rather mild touchdown and suggest the airplane's descent rate was almost stopped. However, because of the dynamic winds and the further recognition of the turbulent environment affecting the flight crew, the NTSB cannot conclude that other pilots would have been able to avoid the ground. The go-around mode did not provide optimum pitch command guidance for penetrating wind shears. So, I mean, like we said earlier, NASA said maybe if he hadn't, you know, pushed down, they would have avoided the ground. But even the NTSB says because of the environment, who's to say? They don't even know if another pilot could have avoided this. So there are, of course, some findings here that the NTSB released as a result of this incident. Between 5.52 and 6 p.m., the Cell-D radar weather echo positioned off the north end of the DFW airport intensified from a VIP level 1 to a VIP level 4, which we covered. Mm -hmm. The absence of the CWSU meteorologist from a station between 5.25 and 6.10 and the failure of the CWSU procedures to require the position to be monitored by a qualified person during his absence precluded detection of the intensification of the weather echo north of DFW. Again, the meteorologist was gone taking his dinner. Nobody was at the station. Yeah. During its final approach to runway 17 left, flight 191 flew into a very strong weather echo located north of the field. The weather echo contained a thunderstorm with a heavy rain shower. The thunderstorm produced an outflow containing a microburst. The microburst touched down just north of the DFW airport. The center of the microburst was about 12,000 feet north of the end of runway 17 left and was about 1,000 feet west of the extended center line of the runway and ground track for flight 191. The microburst diameter was 3.4 kilometers. That's about two miles, just FYI. The horizontal wind shear across the microburst was less than 73 knots, and the maximum updraft was 4.8 knots, and the maximum downdraft was 29 knots. So some crazy winds going on in there in a very small two-mile wide area. Mm -hmm. Flight 191 penetrated the microburst and the vortex flow in the southern side of the microburst. 17 seconds before the initial impact, the airplane encountered rapid reversals in the lateral, horizontal, and vertical winds, causing the stick shaker to activate. The first officer exerted a 20 to 25 pound push force in the control column in response to the stick shaker. The first officer exerted a 20 to 25 pound pull force on the control column in order to avoid ground contact. The stick shaker activated momentarily and the first officer relaxed the pull force on the control column, which made ground contact inevitable. Mm. Delta 191 touched down softly and almost avoided ground contact, so it was close. (sighs) The NTSB determines that the probable causes of this accident were the flight crew's decision to initiate and continue the approach into a cumulonimbus cloud, which they observed to contain visible lightning, the lack of specific guidelines, procedures, and training for avoiding and escaping from a low-altitude wind shear, and the lack of a definitive real-time wind shear hazard information. This resulted in the aircraft's encounter at low altitude with a microburst-induced severe wind shear, from a rapidly developing thunderstorm located on the final approach course. So, I mean, just totally wrong place, wrong time, the perfect storm. Yeah. And again, you know, living here in central Texas, you've seen it happen where you're like, everything might be sunny and fine one minute, and then just like 15, 30 minutes later, it's hailing. The weather can change so fast here. Mm -hmm. Like We had really severe weather on Monday here a few days ago. It got really bad. And then once it blew through, it was beautiful. Yeah, I know. Okay, so there's some, uh, some recommendations here as a result of this. Wind shear forecasting to define better the conditions conducive to microburst development and to inform dispatchers and pilots when these conditions are present as well as when there is a wind shear potential involving non-frontal systems. Improve communications between the weather service, air traffic controllers, and pilots to ensure that pilots are provided the most current forecasts and existing conditions for planning flights, landing approaches, and departures. 
Improve real-time detection of wind shear conditions by use of low-level wind shear alert system to maximum potential by ensuring optimum placement of the anemometer array and optimum software alarm logic and expeditious development and installation of microwave Doppler radar equipment at airports located in high microburst risk. So this is actually the biggest development. I want to emphasize this one a bit. What's really helped to prevent these kinds of incidents since then, Mm -hmm. really to make everything a lot safer, is this installation of Doppler radar equipment. Traditional radar was not really effective at detecting these microbursts and wind shears like this, but Doppler radar can detect it. Okay. So pretty quickly after this, Doppler radar began to be rolled out at airports where this was a concern. And uh, they've, it's really helped to make this really a lot safer. And Doppler radar, how is, how is it different than normal radar? So, okay, I can't tell, I'm not an expert on this. <laughs> I tried to look into this and I try, I'm going to try to give you an answer to the best of my ability. So I think Doppler radar, do you know what the Doppler effect is? I I guess I should ask that first. I remember hearing about it in school. So a good example to think of the Doppler effect is like when you see an ambulance, right? Like let's say you're standing on the side of a road and there's an ambulance with its lights on. Like it changes pitch by how far away it is? Right. And like let's say it's driving, it's going to drive past you on the street. As it's coming towards you, you might not hear it until it's pretty close. But once it passes you, you'll hear it for a lot longer. Okay. The sound uh, lasts for a lot longer when something's moving by like that. So from what I understand, Doppler radar reads the return, the bounce of the signal, and times it to determine how far away things are more precisely and the direction it's moving in as well. Oh. I think traditional radar is, has a lot more difficult time with the direction. Uh, and yeah. Doppler radar is better equipped to detect those kinds of things. This was the big breakthrough from this incident was Doppler uh-huh. radar, and which is, you know, why well, I'm not afraid of uh, microbursts <laughs> anymore. It's, it makes me feel a lot better now. Okay, I'm going to continue with the recommendations now. Pilot training which stresses avoidance of wind shear and discusses the meteorological conditions conducive to the development of wind shears, particularly convective wind shears. Development, certification, and installation of airborne equipment which can provide the pilot early warning of wind shear encounters and optimize the logic of command guidance instruments to enhance the pilot's response to the encounter. This is part two of the biggest recommendations Mm -hmm. from this. First was Doppler radar on the ground. And the second part here was to put equipment on the plane so the pilots can see it for themselves. Because if you think about it, like if a meteorologist at their station on the ground sees it, then they have to pick up a phone or they have to tell the air traffic controller who then has to tell the pilot. It's like playing the Mm -hmm. telephone game, right? You introduce the possibility for miscommunication and you introduce delay in getting that information to the pilot. Yeah, and you said these things only last, what, a couple minutes? So it's Right. So by developing and putting the instrumentation on the plane, the pilots can see it for themselves now as well. So they can make the call and they can see if they need to take evasive action like immediately. Yeah. This was also a big deal. It took, this took a while to figure out. From what I understand... Like putting Doppler radar on a plane was very difficult. Oh, yeah, because the plane is also moving. The plane is yeah, also it, moving. I was just thinking, it's like, yeah, that I bet you that's confusing. Yeah, from what I understand, you know, uh, like NASA, this is a problem NASA had to work on. They had to, you know, outfit planes with different equipment and fly into thunderstorms and fly into microbursts repeatedly to test equipment to figure out how to make this happen. Oh, man, this is it's like the plot of Twister. Yeah. If you remember that movie, <laughs> yeah, then, like we have to go in there and like dump a bunch of little the sensor things. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's funny. It's true. Three more recommendations here. Require tower controllers to issue thunderstorm, microburst and windshield reports when conditions differ from the automatic terminal information service broadcast information and when actual pilot reports have been received and solicit further pilot reports until such time that confirmation is received that conditions no longer exist. So just stay on top of the information. 
talk mm-hmm. to the pilots who are going through it. That's one of the things. Remember, I mentioned that there was a Learjet that landed in front of this Delta flight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it made it through because it passed right. The microburst occurred right behind it. Oh, man. And that, because that plane was a small, tiny plane, it would have been really messed up, right? Yeah, it might have been worse off. And the pilot of that plane, I've seen interviews with him. He said you know, that it was actually really bad and that when they touched down, they required the whole runway to come to a stop. Oh. They turned off at the end of the runway, uh, that they, they really needed the whole thing, that it was really, really bad conditions that day. That'd be really scary, too, to land and then turn around and see a giant plane crash. Yeah, where you just went through? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, two more uh, recommendations here. Develop procedures to require that central weather service units are attended constantly during operation so that information concerning hazardous weather conditions receive prompt, appropriate dissemination. So basically give the dude a backup so that yeah. when he goes to get uh, food, which everyone needs to eat, that someone can sit there or, I don't know, maybe they let him have food at his station. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> figure it out. Well, like, what if you have to go to the bathroom? You know, it's... Right. Have some backup there. Develop procedures to require the CWSU meteorologist to disseminate information on rapidly developing hazardous weather conditions to FAA terminal radar approach control and tower facilities immediately upon detection of the conditions. So, I mean, just get the information out there. This is what's most important. So following the crash and ensuing NTSB report, DFW's DPS made improvements to its post-crash notification system, including the introduction of automated voice notification system to reduce notification times. In 1988, following the crash of Delta Airlines Flight 1141 while taking off from DFW, DPS completed its notification of nearby emergency services in 21 minutes. So just trying to get everyone in the area notified more quickly, not just the Mm -hmm. um, airport people. The NTSB described this as a significant improvement over response times after the Delta Flight 191 crash. Based on improved response times, the NTSB issued a safety recommendation on January 9th, 1990, calling for airport executives nationwide to consider the benefits of using automated voice notification systems for their emergency aid notifications. Pilots were also required to train to react to microbursts and to quickly take evasive action in order to safely land the plane. They got better training. Yeah, to better understand it. And But even so, I mean, like I said, the captain on this plane seemed like he knew what was going on, but yeah. know, it still seemed like it was an impossible situation. Even like I said, the NTSB was unsure if another pilot could have you know, made the correct inputs here. Are microbursts more common... Close to the ground? I can't answer that for certain, but they're more dangerous by the ground because there's less altitude to trade off. They may exist in other places, but in general, you know, pilots are going to try to avoid anything that looks like bad weather when they're flying. So they may be less encountered in the air as well at altitude. Hmm. So this crash, Delta Flight 191, resulted in the longest aviation trial in American history. It lasted 14 months, spanning from 1988 to 1989. And it was presided over by federal judge David Owen Bellew Jr. of the Northern District of Texas. Trial for what? I'm going to try to summarize this as best I can. Uh, I looked over the the legal briefing for this. And again, not only am I not a pilot, I'm also not a lawyer. So <laughs> take this uh, with a grain <laughs> okay. of salt. You, you, can, you can look up the case yourself as well if you want to know more information about it. But there was a lawsuit on behalf of the, the people on the plane filed against Delta Airlines as a result of the crash. There was also a separate action filed by the widow of the pilot and the widow of the second officer who sued the United States on behalf of the the beneficiaries under the Texas Wrongful Death Act. These two different suits were consolidated with Delta's suit by order of the court. 
So the people on behalf of the passengers on the plane filed suit against Delta, as well as the widows of the pilots sued okay. Delta for wrongful death. So they were blaming Delta. But so did what ended up happening to Delta have to... So this is actually kind of a groundbreaking trial. This trial featured the first use of computer graphic animation as substantive evidence in federal court. Uh, you know, nowadays, this kinds of animation are routine. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've linked some on our social media before. I've linked some of these animations where they, you know, recreate what's happening on these crashes. But this mm-hmm. was the first time. And the use in this litigation was novel enough that it was on a cover story in a 1989 issue of uh, ABA Journal of the American Bar Association. Oh. Preparing the animated video for the trial cost the Department of Justice somewhere between $100,000 to $150,000. Oh, my God. God. Today, that's the equivalent of two hundred and ten dollars to $310,000 just to make that uh, animated video. And it took him two years of work. Oh, my God. And I bet you it would take one dude a day in After Effects now. <laughs> I'm sure nowadays, uh, probably the NTSB and these investigative uh, branches probably have an automated system where they just feed the flight data recorder data into it, and it just automatically uh-huh. generates the video. I'm sure it's an automated process by this point. It's probably yeah. just like a plug-in or an app that they run on their oh. computer that's like you just spit in the data and it comes out, you know, three minutes later. But I guess it's like having to describe what happened and like the wind to people who don't study it. You know, you even studied it as a kid. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but yeah, it's so hard to kind of understand and visualize and really like, who do you blame for that? Right. And I think, you know, when, even when we do this podcast, I think lots of times we try to present things as clearly and concisely as possible. But even then, it's like, it's a mouthful of stuff. And I'll get through some parts of, of episodes where I'm like, all right, take my word for it. We're going to kind of explain some of this stuff. <laughs> we don't really get into like the nitty gritty. Like if I was described, if you listen to this podcast and then you were quizzed like, all right, whose fault was this? You'd probably be like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you were like, the trials, like, wait, what? Tri- like, who's to play? <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, the court found that both government personnel and the Delta flight crew were negligent but that Delta was ultimately responsible because its pilot's negligence was the proximate cause of this accident. Uh, And the ruling was actually upheld uh, on an appeal to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So 10 years after the crash, survivors and family members of the victims gathered in Florida to recognize the 10th anniversary of the crash. In 2010, 25 years after the accident, a memorial was installed at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport's Founders Plaza in Grapevine. Mm. But that's it. Delta Airlines Flight 191, a super, super influential incident as far as like aviation safety history because we have you know much better understanding of microbursts and wind shears and much better protection and detection yeah these days to keep uh incidents like this from happening again yeah i have a question what about little planes that wouldn't have doppler radar i think the kind of plane you're thinking of would probably not be flying in these conditions in like, that, okay in, in, when it's when there's storms like that that makes sense but uh yep that's it uh delta airlines flight 191 Huge tragedy, but resulted in uh, major changes to the way that, you know, the airports look at weather to keep it safer for all of us nowadays. Yeah. Little Gus doesn't have to be scared. Yeah. Little scared Gus turned into big, not scared Gus. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, As always, I just want to remind you to uh, follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod. We got Twitter. We got Instagram. We got Facebook. You can check it out. You can share stuff from there if you want, you know, yeah. people or share this podcast as well. Maybe share this with someone who's afraid of wind on a plane because this will show them how how it's they shouldn't be scared anymore. Maybe. But <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes fears are irrational, but it's worth a shot. Maybe they'll maybe they will feel better after this one. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening everyone. Bye.